Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are discussing the making of the modern Middle East and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Just a quick recap of the previous episode. We discussed the Gallipoli campaign where the British were trying to invade Constantinople through the Gallipoli Peninsula. We mentioned how it did not go well for the British and after the uh, things started going bad for the British, Winston Churchill, who was the leader of the British Navy, he was the commander of the British Navy, he began to, uh, he took most of the blame for the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, which ultimately led to Winston Churchill leaving politics and becoming an officer in the war. Also, after the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, who was the overall British uh Secretary of War, I suppose, or Minister of War. He it was decided that he would take a less of a less of a hands-on role in the war. And he decided to focus his plans, focus his mind on his plans for the Middle East, and he turned over most of the day-to-day running of the war to someone else. Nonetheless, Kitchener still retained his title and his role as the British Minister of War, but he was just not as hands-on as he was before. And so with that, let's continue on. Right now, we're going to discuss the creation of the Arab Bureau. And before we get into that, we have to go and look at our friend, who's not really our friend, Mark Sykes. We mentioned him in a previous episode. Well, Mark Sykes met with Lord Kitchener in late 1915, just as the British were preparing to pull out of Gallipoli. And as we have mentioned with uh, Lord Kitchener taking on a much smaller role in the in the day-to-day affairs of World War I, he was able to refocus on the Middle East, which was his specialty as he had been there for so many years. So Mark Sykes, he had just completed a six-month tour throughout Asia and the Middle East. The British government had sent him to meet with several other British officials throughout the British Empire and discuss the committee, he was on a committee called the Debunson Committee, and Mark Sykes's role in this, uh, this committee's role was to come up with a plan for the Middle East after the eventual fall of the Ottoman Empire, and the British government sent Mark Sykes throughout the empire to discuss these, the plans from the committee with the various British officials in various parts of the world. So Sykes had met with British officials in the Balkans, Egypt, Persian Gulf, as well as India. While in Egypt in particular, Mark Sykes met with one of Kitchener's old British intelligence colleagues, and this colleague introduced Mark Sykes, Mark Sykes to the Arab leaders in the region. And while discussing the affairs of the war and the outcome of the war with these various Arab leaders, Mark Sykes came to learn that these Arabs wanted the British to take away the Arab lands from the Ottomans and help in creating a, a, an, an Arab nation in the Middle East, one that was independent of the Ottoman Empire. And so the Arab leaders, as well as the British intelligent, intelligence officials in Cairo, they convinced Mark Sykes that the local Arabs wanted independence. And though we have mentioned in the past, in previous episodes, that there were several Arab nationalists throughout the Ottoman Empire, particularly in Damascus and even a few in the Hejaz, but mostly in Damascus. However, 
this idea of Arab nationalism was limited to the elites of Arab society and the thinkers and those who have spent too much time in Western nations and the Western universities. The vast majority of the Arab world did not really care about this ideology called Arab nationalism. But since these so-called Arab leaders were the ones the British intelligence officials were meeting with, they were the ones who they listened to, and they are, they are the ones who helped the British form their future policies for the Middle East. So they convinced Mark Sykes to support Kitchener's Arab Caliphate idea, and so uh, Mark Sykes basically came along and accepted Kitchener's Arab Caliphate idea. And this is just a refresher in your memory if you missed it. We we also discussed this in previous episodes, how um, Lord Kitchener wanted to create an Arab Caliphate where the Caliphate was no longer a Turkish Caliphate, essentially the Ottoman Caliph or the Ottoman Sultan. Instead, it was an Arab Caliph. And this Arab Caliph was most likely based in the Hejaz, but this Arab Caliph was just a spiritual leader and not an actual political leader. And Kitchener was hoping that this would give the British control over the Middle East and over Islam and Muslims itself. If the British were the power behind this future Arab Caliph, then the British could, of course, control the Muslim world spiritually, and then they can definitely control it politically because they would also set up a political ruler. This was part of uh, Kitchener's misunderstanding of the role of the caliph, the traditional role of the caliph, where the caliph was not just a religious leader, but also a political leader. And he misunderstood that. He thought that the caliph was similar to the idea of a pope in uh, Roman Catholicism. However, even though Kitchener and the British did not really understand the idea of the caliph, the Arabs whom they were speaking to, they fully understood it. And by this time, this idea of an Arab caliph had actually developed into something more of an Arab or maybe even an Egyptian empire. So when these Arab intellectuals were speaking to Mark Sykes, while they may have used the word Arab caliphate, they actually intended or meant something more like an Egyptian empire, an empire for Arabs or a actual kingdom, a state for Arabs with its capital in Cairo, covering much of Arabia and Egypt. When Mark Sykes finally returned to London and met with Kitchener, he, of course, reiterated and repeated what he had heard in Cairo, how the Arabs were just waiting for the British to help liberate them from the Ottomans, which wasn't exactly true. And Mark Sykes also proposed an idea to create an Arab bureau. During his six-month travel throughout the Middle East and Asia, Mark Sykes, Mark Sykes learned that there was lots of confusion regarding British policy. As he met with these various officials flung out throughout the British Empire, he was upset to find out that everyone was not necessarily on the same page. The British officials throughout the, uh, the vast British government or British Empire all had their own personal 
um, desires, their personal goals, their personal ambitions. And sometimes these different goals and ambitions and desires did not necessarily work together. And very often they conflicted with each other. So you had British officials in British India and British Cairo, officials in the Navy, officials in the War Department, which is essentially the Army, and even officials in the Foreign Office. Everyone had their, their own idea about how things should go in the Middle East. And very often their ideas did not necessarily jibe with each other. And so Mark Sykes, when he did return to London and he spoke with Lord Kitchener, he proposed the idea of creating an Arab bureau, which would take over all affairs dealing with Arabs and the Middle East to make sure that these various ideas work together or that the British could come up with some sort of policy that would be, of course, in Britain's interest and uh, make sure that these different departments within the British Empire didn't derail what was best for the British Empire as a whole. In this Arab Bureau, while Mark Sykes was almost certainly being a good patriot to his country and suggesting it, he had his own ambitions as well. He wanted this future Arab Bureau to be headquartered in Cairo, where the British pretty much controlled Egypt. He also wanted to be the head of this new Arab Bureau. And when he proposed the idea to Lord Kitchener, Kitchener, he loved it. He loved anything dealing with the Middle East and anything that uh, concentrated power in his old headquarters of Cairo. So Lord Kitchener, he took the idea and he ran with it. He proposed it to the British cabinet, the British cabinet. They accepted the idea. And just like that, the Arab Bureau was born. However, for Mark Sykes, he did not have uh, he did not get the uh, ambitious goals he wanted. Once he gave the idea to Kitchener, Kitchener pretty much took it and did what he wanted with it. Lord Kitchener made sure that he had complete oversight over the Arab Bureau. So even though Kitchener was um, relegated to London, he was, in fact, the minister of war. So he had to stay in London directing the affairs of the uh, British war effort in World War One. He still made sure that his policy and his ideas and his vision were carried out through the Arab Bureau. So Kitchener remained in charge, uh, overall in charge of the Arab Bureau, even though he did not take a direct role. The Arab Bureau was also not an independent organization, which is what Mark Sykes had really wanted. Instead, the Arab Bureau became a subsection of the Cairo Intelligence Office, which basically once again, put it under the control of Lord Kitchener and those who supported his ideas in Cairo. And Mark Sykes was also not in charge of this bureau of this new Arab Bureau by any means. He was just another bureaucrat working within the bureau and working under and for Lord Kitchener. Ultimately, the Arab Bureau, even though it became very influential and very important, it did not really do anything to lessen or mitigate the confusion and the various policies and ambitions flying around the British Empire. And over time, the Arab Bureau just began, just continued to grow and influence and its reach. Uh, they brought in several British bureaucrats into Cairo. And among these was a man named Thomas Edward Lawrence. And if you just take his initials, that would become T.E. Lawrence. And even though you may have never heard of T.E. Lawrence, you have hopefully heard of Lawrence of Arabia. 
he would go on to become that. And I'm pretty sure his story will come up eventually as we go through this. If you haven't, if you haven't never heard of Lawrence of Arabia or T.E. Lawrence, it's a popular movie, I believe, from the 60s. You can find it online somewhere and take a look at it and watch. It's an interesting story, even though it's kind of glamorized on, uh, in the movies. With the creation of the Arab Bureau, Kitchener, he now had what he really, really wanted. He was fully in charge of Middle Eastern policy. Middle Eastern policy was being run out of Cairo, where his subordinates and his old stomping grounds were. His protege, Mark Sykes, Mark Sykes, who had went on this uh, vast fact-finding mission throughout Asia and the Middle East. Mark Sykes was working on his behalf. And so the Arab Bureau would follow Lord Kitchener's vision and ideas from his headquarters in London. So Kitchener's colleagues in Cairo, they began to push his vision out for the Middle East. Kitchener, he wanted British, uh, British Egypt to pretty much control the Middle East. He wanted Cairo to uh, be the seat of the, of, of the British ideology and the British vision for the Middle East. However, this ran counter to the desires of other departments of the British Empire, particularly uh, British India, which was perhaps the most important section of the British Empire of all. The British India was India itself was a crown jewel of the British Empire and British India as well, as well as the foreign office, which in um, the foreign office from an American standpoint, would be like something like the State Department. It is a part of the government that deals with other governments. Both of these other two departments, British India and the Foreign Office, they had their own plans for the Middle East. And British India, in fact, they really never liked Kitchener's idea of an Arab caliphate. They thought it was foolish. They thought it was, they thought it was foolhardy. They thought Kitchener was, was really going into some sort of fantasy land, but also British India, they had their own desires for the Middle East because they wanted to annex Mesopotamia, which is what we now call Iraq. They wanted to take that region for themselves and incorporate modern day Iraq into the overall department of British India. And so any suggestion by Lord Kitchener to create an Arab caliphate kind of conflicted with their idea to take a certain portion of the Middle East for themselves. So now let's switch over to Arabia itself. Speaking of Kitchener's um, Arab Caliphate idea, his candidate for this future caliph was none other than Sharif Hussein ibn Ali. Sharif Hussein was the Sharif or governor of Mecca. He ruled Mecca and also Medina on behalf of the Ottoman Empire, though his relationship with the Ottoman Empire was really not that great. But uh, Lord Kitchener had already been in communication with Sharif Hussein, and he had already uh, proposed this idea to Sharif Hussein about becoming or helping him to establish an Arab caliphate. And Sharif Hussein, being the politician he he ultimately was, he did not reject the idea, but he did not wholeheartedly embrace it either. This was his way of uh, not basically opening the door and not closing another door. He didn't want to expose himself in case the Ottomans won the war and found out about his communication with the British. But at the same time, he didn't want to turn turn away this British offer of 
uh, becoming basically a king. And it was the king part that Sharif Hussein really cared about. Kitchener was way off his um, way off his rocker thinking that the Arabs really wanted a caliphate. Nobody really wanted a caliphate back then. They already had one. Uh, half of them didn't really care for the caliphate they did have. They weren't really, there wasn't this push in the Middle East, at least for an Arab caliphate. This was Kitchener imposing his own ideas onto another group of people. What Sharif Hussein really wanted, he wanted to be a king. He wanted to have uh, authority and political power. He didn't mind having religious power also, but he really wanted political power. And so he was more concerned about the king part than he was about the caliph part. And Kitchener really never quite understood that. Also, Sharif Hussein had some other pressures on his um that he had to worry about as well. We mentioned how he didn't have a really great relationship with the Ottomans, but by uh, January 1915, we mentioned how uh, this was about the time that the Ottomans were just um, being defeated in their in their failed campaign to drive the British out of the um, Suez Canal, the Suez area. So around January 15. Sharif Hussein had learned that the young Turks, this uh, the group of Turkish politicians who now ran the Ottoman government, they planned to get rid of him after the war. And so when Sharif Hussein learned this, that the, the young Turks had every intention to get rid of him once the war was over, the only reason he was still in his, his position now was that you know, they were dealing with a, a war which was much more important. Once he fit, once he learned this, Sharif Hussein then made up his idea that he had to go ahead and side with the British. And that helped him come to the conclusion that it was time to revolt against the Ottomans. We mentioned in the previous episode that before this, he was, first of all, undecided. And he was also loyal to the Ottoman Empire or the Ottoman Emperor, the Sultan, the Caliph, uh, so to speak. However, he had a problem with the young Turks and him, as well as many other Arabs in the region. They did not like the Turkish nationalism that was coming from this new young Turk government. So he had he was not one who was naturally predisposed to revolt against the empire. It just happened. So because of the political disagreements between him and the young Turks. And so now that he knew that the young Turks planned to get rid of him once the war was over, Sharif Hussein sent his son Faisal ibn Hussein to Damascus to try to uh, gather the support of the various Arab leaders, particularly particularly Arab nationalist leaders in Damascus. And we had mentioned before how this um, this growing strain of Arab nationalism had led to a a bunch of Arab nationalist secret societies many of them located in Damascus, in Syria. And we discussed this in chapter six of this series. So go back and listen to that if you missed it. Now, these Arab secret societies, these Arab nationalist secret societies, they were not undecided about rebellion against the Ottomans. They absolutely advocated and wanted to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Nonetheless, uh, these Arab secret societies, they weren't fully committed to propping up Sharif Hussein nor allying themselves with Britain. At the time, 
everyone, at least in the in the Middle East, many of them felt that the that Germany would win. And in the early part of the war, it seemed as if Germany just might win because they had uh, they had gained some very quick victories and easy victories over uh, the British over not really the British, but the French as well as the Russians. And the Russians are kind of teetering on the edge. And so for a while in the early part of World War One, before uh, the whole thing turned into a big, gigantic stalemate. For a while in the beginning, many people thought that Germany was going to win. And so the Arab secret societies, they weren't ready to throw in their their lot with the British just yet. And another thing about the Arabs, even though they were nationalists, they were still Muslim and they had their a little bit of apprehension about being ruled by a non-Muslim government. From their perspective, even though they didn't really care for the young Turks and their brand of Turkish nationalism, at least they were still Muslim. And so these uh, Arab secret societies, they would prefer to have been ruled by Muslim Turks than Christian British. And so rather than accept Sharif Hossein's proposal to join the British side and revolt against the Ottomans straight away, the Arab secret societies, their leaders and their participants, they decided to try to play the, the British and the Ottomans against each other. They were hoping to blackmail both groups and see how they could get the best deal from whichever one offered them the best deal. And so when Sharif Hossein's son Faisal came to them and, and suggested that it was time to revolt against the Ottomans, they brought up a counterpoint and told Faisal to tell his father to tell the British that they had to promise Arab independence. They had to promise the creation of an independent Arab state. And if the Brits agreed to this, these Arab societies, these Arab organizations, they their plan was to go back to the Young Turks, to the Ottoman government, and ask them to match it and hopefully, once again, play the two groups against each other and try to get the best possible deal that they could from the whole situation. Well, things did not turn out quite as they had hoped. As it turned out, Jamal Pasha, one of the leaders of the Young Turk government, found out about the Arab plotting and he immediately moved to break it up. He sent his police down into Damascus, arrested many of these Arab nationalist leaders and sent them to the front lines in, at Gallipoli, which even though it was a stalemate for the British, the Ottoman soldiers, both Turks and Arabs, they were getting chewed up there pretty well as, uh, as well. So it was a, a slaughterhouse at Gallipoli for both sides, both the British and the, uh, the Ottomans. And so Jamal Pasha, he sent a lot of these guys who were plotting against the Ottoman government, sent them right to the front lines of Gallipoli. And so this weakened the Arabs, uh, nationalist societies in Damascus and those who managed to survive this purge by Jamal Pasha. Jamal Pasha was, uh, we mentioned him earlier, he was one of the three Pashas that ran the Ottoman government during this time. These people who survived this purge they now worked with a sense of urgency and they encouraged Faisal when they saw him again, Faisal Ibn Hussein, to tell his father to hurry up and contact the British and make clear his demands for an independent Arab state. And so just like that, the uh, Arab nationalists had lost one of their biggest bargaining chips. So 
based on these events and based on this advice from the Arab Nationalist Secret Societies in Damascus, Sharif Hussein, he he um, created a letter, he made a message, and he sent this message to the British officials in London and Cairo, making his demands for an independent Arab state. Well, when British officials in London received Hussein's letter with making these uh, specific demands, and one of his demands was that he wanted all of Arabia, and he wanted Arabia, which is basically the Arabian Peninsula as we know it today, uh, also including what we now consider the Levant, which includes Jordan, Syria, uh, Lebanon, and Palestine. He wanted all of that region to become an independent Arab kingdom. Hussein also wanted to be the king of this new kingdom. And this was something that the British just weren't expecting, particularly Lord Kitchener. As he mentioned, he had promised Sharif Hussein to become the Arab Caliphate, the Arab Caliph, um, if he helped Britain. But Kitchener had no idea that when he made that idea, when he proposed, made that suggestion and made that offer, Sharif Hussein, he expected the Caliph to be both king and religious leader. He he expected both a political and religious role in this new future Arab caliphate. And of the two roles, the one that Sharif Hussein really cared about was the political one. However, when the British received Sharif Hussein's demands, at this point in time, it was uh, perhaps in the spring, sorry, the summer going into the fall of 1915, the Gallipoli campaign was, it was uh, still in the early stages. It hadn't turned into the quagmire that it would become, but the British still had hopes that they could probably push through and they weren't really ready to take Sharif Hussein's demand seriously from their perspective. And they were quite right in this. Sharif Hussein had no right to demand anything from them. I mean, they owed him nothing. He hadn't done anything for them as yet. He hadn't uh, he was essentially officially still a, a part of the enemy. He was a member of the enemy. He was part of the Ottoman Empire. So he had not really done anything for them. He had no right and no leverage to make any demands of the British whatsoever. And so the British, they scoffed at his and his proposal and called him presumptuous to think that he could demand anything from the British. And so they got his message and just pretty much file 13 did, which meaning they uh, pretty much put it on the back burner and forgot about it and didn't really pay him any attention. However, a few months later, something happened that kind of changed their mind about the whole thing. In October 1915, Kitchener in London, he received a message from British intelligence in Cairo. And this message said that there was a very good potential, very good possibility to receive massive Arab support in the, in the Ottoman Empire. There was the opportunity. The possibility existed where the British could receive Arab support against the Ottomans. This stated this message that, that he received from British intelligence basically stated that the British had to support Sharif Hussein in his quest for an independent Arab Arab kingdom or they would uh, the Arabs would go ahead and switch their support to the Ottomans. Even though at this point in time, the Arabs were supporting the Ottomans, <laughs> they were part of the Ottoman Empire and Arabs were um made up a very large portion of the force of the Ottoman uh, troops defending Gallipoli. 
By this time in October 1915, the mood, uh, the British mood of Gallipoli had changed. The stalemate had gotten worse. Thousands upon thousands of soldiers had died on both sides. The British were losing soldiers by the thousands and not gaining anything for it. And already people were ready, um, were ready to pull out of the whole the whole fiasco. Churchill had already lost his position and the British mood regarding Gallipoli was had completely turned sour. And so with this backdrop, now Lord Kitchener was ready to listen to some of Sharif Hussein's uh, proposals and demands. So the second piece of information now coming from British intelligence most of this information was based on the testimony of a man named Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi. So this is the second piece of information that Kitchener is receiving, demanding uh, an Arab, an independent Arab state in return for support against the Ottomans. Now, who is this person, Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi? Well, not much is known about him. He has a small stub in Wikipedia. And he seemed to have been a minor player in as far as the uh, Ottomans were concerned. But despite his uh, small role in the uh, Ottoman mil- military, he was either directly or indirectly responsible for the shaping of the Middle East as we have it today. Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi was a very young man at the time this all happened. He was a member of those Arab secret societies that we mentioned in Damascus. He claimed to have been a member of an organization called Al-Ahad. And he was one of those um, secret society members who were arrested and then sent to the front lines by Jamal Pasha when he discovered their plotting. So at the time that he went to the front lines in Gallipoli, he was only about 24 years old. However, despite being in the military and now fighting for his life in, at Gallipoli, he continued to correspond with his Arab nationalist colleagues back in Damascus. And in this correspondence, as he was writing letters back and forth to the Arab nationalists in Damascus, he learned about Sharif Hussein's uh, letter that he had sent to to London, to Kitchener, demanding an independent Arab empire or independent Arab state. And so when Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi learned about Sharif Hussein's demands on the British, he got his own idea. In the fall of 1915, Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi, he crossed over enemy lines onto the British side, surrendered himself to the British and told them that he could help the British win the war. When the British officials in Gallipoli heard about this, they immediately sent him over to Cairo, where he met with British intelligence. And so within a few days of surrendering himself, Mohammed Sharif al-Faruqi is now sitting as a guest of British intelligence in Cairo, and he goes on to make his claim. Now, bear in mind, he did not speak English, and even though I'm pretty certain there are many British officials who spoke Arabic, there had to be, have been some language barrier there. Anyhow, Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi, he claimed to represent al-Ahad, uh, this Arab nationalist society. While he was a member of al-Ahad, it is not clear if he actually represented them. There's a big difference between the two. However, British intelligence, they never bothered to verify any of his claims. He made lots of bold claims, and he 
reiterated Sharif Hussein's demands for an Arab kingdom. Now, bear in mind, Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi had nothing to do with the dealings between Sharif Hussein and uh, the Arab nationalists and uh, Kitcheners in London. He had nothing to do to do with that. He has heard about this information through his correspondence with his with his colleagues back in Damascus. But he pretended, at least uh, at least to the British and to the British intelligence officials, he pretended to be uh, a member and part and parcel of all the dealings going on in, in Damascus. And the British saw all of this as just a, a, a wonderful coincidence. The fact that, that um, Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi knew about Hussein's, Sharif Hussein's demands for an Arab empire or Arab state, that helped to convince the British intelligence officials that he really was privy to, some, uh, to all of these discussions between the Arab nationalists and Sharif Hussein. So Al-Faruqi, he just continued to make a whole bunch of promises and negotiate on behalf of the Arabs throughout the entire world, basically, or at least throughout the, the Middle East with the British. But the fact is that he really, it is unlikely he had any authority to do so. Nonetheless, Al-Faruqi, he promises to the British that the Arabs of the Middle East, they would rise up against the Ottoman Empire if Britain promised them uh, their own Arab kingdom. And he made it seem that all of the Arabs in the Middle East were united with uh, behind this cause. They were united in supporting the British if they gave them uh, or promised them their own kingdom, which and we already mentioned that it was really only the uh, the Arab intellectuals, the elites who even supported this idea. And uh, it's not even clear if Al-Faduqi even represented these Arab elites. For the British, this is this is the break that they were looking for. If they could get the Arabs of the Middle East to join their cause against the uh, Ottomans, this would possibly mean millions of Arabs suddenly fighting for the British cause. This would almost certainly crush the Ottoman Empire. This would also mean that the that the Gallipoli campaign, which they were about to withdraw from, might not have been a total waste. Remember, at this time, Britain was barely holding on to just a, a tiny tip of the peninsula, the Gallipoli Peninsula, and they were just getting torn to shreds on the peninsula. I mean, the Ottomans were too, but the Ottomans were were defending. So it was a different case. And it was a different uh, perspective from the Ottomans who were defending the peninsula and the British who were trying to take the peninsula. And so at this point in time, when this proposal was made by Al-Faruqi, the British thought that this would be a, a chance for them to turn the tide. If they could get the Arabs to help them revolt, or if they could get the Arabs to revolt against the Ottomans, this would turn the tide and perhaps allow them to successfully conquer the Gallipoli Peninsula and then even invade Constantinople, or Istanbul as it's more properly called. And so the British jumped at this idea. However, they did not realize that a lot of this was just a hoax. They did not idea. They did not understand that Muhammad Sharif al-Faruqi was pretty much blowing smoke to everyone. Sharif Hossein, well, everything was a hoax. Sharif Hossein, he made all these demands, but he had very little strength in Arabia. He only really had 
any authority whatsoever, only in Mecca and Medina. And he only had that because the Ottomans allowed him to have it. So he really didn't have any strength in Mecca or in outside of Mecca and Medina. The Arabs secret societies, they had even less strength. They had been kind of influential in Damascus, but after Jamal Pasha broke them up and sent them off to the front lines, these Arab nationalist, nationalist societies that uh, Al-Faruqi propped up as representing all of the Arabs in the Middle East, they were much weaker than they were before. They had even less power than um, Sharif Hussein had. At least he was actually the leader of something. The Arab societies, they had to be, keep everything secret for fear of being put in jail or even worse. Neither Sharif Hussein nor his son Faisal knew anything about this Al-Faruqi guy. They heard about him through their correspondence with the British, but they never actually met him in person. They thought that he represented the British, and the British thought that he represented um, Sharif Hussein and the Arabs. So neither hand knew what the other one was doing. Nonetheless, despite Al-Faruqi pulling the, this hoax on everybody, the uh, British intelligence officials in Cairo, they continued to negotiate with Sharif Hussein through Al-Faruqi, which made Al-Faruqi a very powerful and influential figure. Al-Faruqi, he continued to act as an intermediary between the Arabs and the British. And in his pretend correspondence between the two groups, he was able to draw and redraw and make all these different lines for this future Arab state. And he did this several times speaking on behalf of the Arabs when he was talking to the British and speaking on behalf of the British when he was talking to the Arabs when, in fact, he represented neither group. So... Al-Faruqi was playing both groups. The Arabs were trying to play the British, and the British were playing them also. Al-Faruqi was, while well, his motives may have been sincere, I don't doubt that he wanted an independent Arab state. He was almost certainly a charlatan and fooling everybody. Sharif Hussein, he made it seem to the British that he had much more power than he really had, yet he had no strength whatsoever, and what little bit he had was only because the Ottomans allowed him to have it. And the British, they were also doing their bit of trickery as well. The British, they decided to play along with this whole thing. They didn't know it was a hoax, but they decided to go ahead. They needed the, the Arab support, and so they went along ahead with it, and they began to make a whole bunch of empty and conflicting promises to the Arabs as well. The thing is, the British had an unspoken rivalry with the French which is kind of strange because at this time, the two nations were allies. They were on the same team fighting against the Germans. However, in case the British won, in case the allies won the war and wound up um, taking huge chunks of the Middle East, the British didn't want the French to gain too much control in the Middle East. The British wanted to make sure that they maintained a monopoly over political affairs in the Middle East. However, as we mentioned in previous episodes, France had their own designs for the Middle East. They had their own ideas of what they wanted the Middle East to look to look like. And particularly, the French wanted Syria and uh, that coast of Lebanon and Palestine. They wanted that part that I guess is Western Syri Western Syria and Lebanon. The uh, French really wanted that back from their old crusading days. 
And so the uh, the British had lots of conflicting ideas and promises and demands. So they had to find a way to appease the Arabs, to appease the French, and still maintain their own superiority in the Middle East. And in the next episode, we will see how the British go about handling these uh, conflicting claims from all these different groups. Ultimately, the British are going to make a bunch of empty, fake, and vague promises. But that will come in the next episode. We'll see how the British are able to handle all these things and how the British uh, promise the Arabs nothing, basically, substantial. They make a bunch of promises that are very vague and come up to nothing substantial. But that'll be next week, inshallah. For now, stay tuned for a short clip from the series on Ibn Zubair's Rebellion. As I mentioned, this is available for those who are Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. We are currently discussing the rebellion of Abdullah Ibn Zubair against the Umayyad Caliphate. And I think this week we were we mentioned um, the penitents, who were a group of Shiites who rose up to take revenge for the massacre at Karbala and the death of Hussein ibn Ali, as well as um, his many of his family members at the massacre at Karbala. And so in this episode, I believe the next episode as well, we're going to discuss how these penitents, this group of Shiites, fared against the Umayyads. But that will be coming up if you uh, gotta become a uh, gotta become a subscriber. And if you are interested in do so, please go to patreon.com slash Islamic history. You will also get access to the first two seasons of the Islamic history podcast, as well as the series on the Sira. Uh, I believe it's $4 per month to be uh, to get that. And we have a $1 a month subscription, but you get much less. But if you want the whole shebang and access to all of the all of the bonus material, $4 a month to become a Patreon subscriber. But I'll have a little clip for you right now in a few minutes, inshallah. But until next week, enjoy this short clip. And until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So the uh, remaining members of the penitent army, which was still pretty large, several thousand strong, they camped at Hussein's tomb at, tomb at Karbala. And even at this point of time, Hussein's tomb at Karbala had already become a pilgrimage destination for devout Shiites. Even though we must understand that the Shiites of this time were not as separate from the main group of Muslims as they are now, there were no, there were definitely no Sunnis at that time. There was no group called Sunnis. Everybody just considered themselves Muslim. At this point in time, Shiites and Sunnis were really, well, I won't say Shiites and Sunnis. Shiites were pretty much just considered regular Muslims. Everybody was Muslim. They were just considered Muslims who felt Ali should have been the leader. It's not as, uh, they weren't the separate sect that we see them as now. Now, I know I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but really it was as similar as Democrats and Republicans in American politics today or whatever politics, whatever, whatever country you're from, say conservatives and liberals. I'm not saying the ideology is the same, but how conservatives and liberals in any political system 
they generally support and belong to the same overall nation. They still support those the same nation's um, structures and ideology and belief system. They all are part of that same thing. They just have a different idea of who should be the leader. This is how it was back then. And actually, they're probably even closer than even Democrats and Republicans are today. But nonetheless, the... Um, the tomb at Karbala had become a pilgrimage destination, and one narrator described the throngs of Shiites coming to Hussein's tomb, and he mentioned how the numbers of Shiites at the tomb were even greater than what he had seen at the Black Stone in the Kaaba. So the Shiites, as they were coming, as the narrator continues, continues to describe the scene, he mentions how the Shiites were coming, and they were weeping, and they were praying for Hussein. They would come by his tomb, and they would insult themselves and berate themselves for not being there to help him. Now, bear in mind, these are not the penitents. These are just Shiites who are already part of this pilgrimage thing to Hussein's tomb. These are just people who are already doing this long before the penitents were coming. These are people who have been coming to, to Hussein's tomb for probably several years before, at least since the time of his death. So people were coming by Hussein's tomb. They were crying and weeping and cursing themselves and, of course, cursing the Umayyad leadership. Many of them mentioned how they wished that they could have been there to die, to die along with Hussein. And they they once again they cursed the, those who were responsible for the massacre at Karbala, and then they would pray right there in the tomb. And then the next morning they would come and and make Salatul Fajr at Hussein's tomb again. And when they did this, this just unleashed a whole nother wave of emotions at the Shiites coming to Hussein's tomb. This just it doubled uh, the emotional atmosphere at the tomb. I guess praying at Hussein's tomb uh, for Salatul Fajr it just Salatul Fajr, I'm sure most of you know this, but in case there's anyone who doesn't know, Salatul Fajr is the dawn prayer for Muslims, the first prayer of the day. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.